we wanted to share this video with you because Danielle wanted y'all to know what God is doing in her heart, in her life. And we are thankful for our sister that she is allowing us to be a part of this with her. When one suffer, we all suffer. When one rejoice, we all rejoice, right? And this is a perfect example of this. I've seen you guys suffer with Danielle. And when she got a report that the cancer wasn't as bad as they thought it would be, um, I, I saw you guys rejoicing as well. Um, we're all in this together. Um, and thank God for what God is doing in her life. What a great principle, right? To, to look around us, to see the hands of God in our lives and not to look at God as this horrible God who just hates us. No, he is in control of all things and we see his sovereignty and we make much of his name, even when it hurts us, even when it hurts us. So with that said, uh, if you're a member, um, guys, know that we've been praying for you. If you're a guest, know that we're excited to have you guys here with us at First Baptist Church of Thibodeau. Um, we are in the book of Hebrews. This will be our last sermon in the book of Hebrews. And then for the next two Sundays, I'll have a Christmas uh, sermon. Uh, for New Year's, I'll have a New Year's sermon. And then we'll dive into a short series on biblical eldership and deaconship. And on the 29th of January, we'll vote on our elders and deacons as well. So with that said, can you please stand, stand out of reverence to God's holy and righteous word. It's in Hebrews chapter 13, Hebrews chapter 13. It's in, we'll look at verses 20 through 25. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead of our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in the sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all. God, we are thankful again for your word. Be with us and speak to our hearts this morning. God, we are dependent on you and thankful for everything that you're doing in our lives. Teach us what we do not know. Make us what we're not. And give us what we do not have. And God's people said, Amen. Just a few announcements um, before I get started. December the 10th, we do have our uh, Christmas social. So we really want to invite you guys to come. Come as we make much of our Lord Jesus Christ, singing Christmas carols, um, contemplating on the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's from 6.30 to 8 o'clock. Brother Gerald? Is the 14th. My bad. It's the 14th. So um, don't show up on the 10th. There will be no one here. The 14th. Um, Right, right. I was yesterday too. Well, Jesus is. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Y'all laughing too much. So let's, let's move on. <laughs> so it's the 14th. Um, 
Thanks for reminding us the 10th was yesterday too, Brother Gerald. That's good. Um, They're asking you to bring some finger foods with you um, to come enjoy uh, fellowshipping with one another. And also the family of the month is uh, Alice and and Brother Charlie. You know, just uh, continue to pray for them. Let them know you're uh, thinking of them um, and you're thankful for them. With that said, uh, the title for today's sermon, uh, let's get into the thing I can actually remember, and that's the sermon. So uh, uh, the, the title for today's sermon is The Final Instruction, The Final Instructions. You know, what's amazing about final instructions is sometimes when you just open a particular book of the Bible, um, specifically this pericope, this passage of Scripture, and you start reading, you, you feel like a lot of things are disjointed. You feel like maybe, man, what, what is the author saying? Or Paul, when he gives his final instructions, you're like, what is he saying? But if you've been reading the book from the very beginning to the end, you will get it, right? It's the same way as a, a briefing in the military. For example, if we would try to read a briefing from the military from World War II and we would pull it before us today, it would be very disjointed. We would feel in a sense like we really cannot understand what's going on, what's happening. But the soldiers who were there would fully understand what's happening, right? And the same thing for us today, friends. There, there are information in this particular passage of Scripture that might seem disjointed, but they're not. It's coherent. It's put together, it's cohesive, it's put together so that we can fully understand the purpose of Christ. And specifically, if you notice here in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 through 25, uh, is, is the author of Hebrews, uh, who is our commanding officer, last order of business to his troops. So if you're God's troop, if you're the troop of the author of Hebrews, this is a command for you. You get this. Because you've been journeying with me as we've been walking through the book of Hebrews. So this is his last order of business for you. It is in the form of a doxology. And a doxology is a formula of praise to God. So he ends by saying, let's praise Jesus. He places the focus on Jesus himself. And he gives it in a sense of a doxology. This is what we need to hear. In other words, the author of Hebrews is saying to keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Never turn from Jesus. Even when you see man will fail you, religion will fail you, your government will fail you, and sometimes your church will fail you, Jesus will never fail you. So keep your eyes on Jesus. So here this morning, I want you to see six reasons why we should keep our eyes on Jesus. This is the final instructions, and he, he, he focuses again on Jesus. Six reasons why we should keep our eyes on Jesus. Reason number one, because of his peace. His peace. Two, because of his resurrection. We don't serve a dead God who's rotten, rotten in the grave. No, or is still on the cross. No, he is resurrected. His resurrection, his shepherding. I love what the author of Hebrews says here. The great shepherd. (laughs) He pastors our heart. His shepherding. For his eternal covenant. Eternal covenant. His covenant that will never, never go away. 
lasts forever. And this is the covenant, if you are truly his, that you have entered in. Our God is a covenant-keeping God. He's a covenant-keeping God. Five, his equipping. He equips us to do the work of the ministry. He equips us to run this race. Jesus is not just this transcendent God who is not intimate with his people. No, he is intimate and he equips us. He helps us to run the race. And six and final, his enabling. He enables us to do what we must do. This is why we make much of Jesus. This is exactly why the author of Hebrews ends the book of Hebrews with a doxology. Why? Because of everything that Jesus has done for us and everything that Jesus is doing in us. Do you get it? This is why we make much of Jesus. So point number one is his peace. The peace or God's peace is foundational to the character and existence of God. I need you to get this. Throughout Scripture, especially in the New Testament, it's mentioned the phrase, the peace of God or God's peace five times in the New Testament. And the citation referenced two aspects of God's peace. One, it references the fact that God has this divine calmness. God is a peaceful God, and he has a divine calmness. And we can really get a picture of God's divine calmness in, in Psalm chapter 2. You, you would think that God is going to act, and God is going to, to act rudely, right? Or, or, or God is going to act in, in a, such a swift way. But we see how calm God is in Psalm 2. Notice with me very carefully. It gives us a picture of God's calmness. Psalms chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst the bonds apart and cast away the cords from us. You would think that God is going to act in such a horrible way, but notice how calm God is. The text tells us here, he who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds him in derision. This is a picture of the peace of God, his divine calmness. So when you think of God being a peaceful God, he moves calmly. He sees what the terrorists are doing, and he moves calmly. He knows ultimately that he will judge. He knows ultimately that his sovereignty will prevail. When you see murders and abortion and sex trafficking happening over and over and over again, and you say, God, where are you? God is calmly moving, and his justice will prevail. This is the beautiful thing about God's divine peace. A perfect example of this, again, is Romans chapter 16, our, our, our enemy himself, Satan. What, about, what will God do to Satan? Notice very carefully, Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon 
crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So the first aspect that we get from about the the peace of God is that his divine calmness. And then secondly, we understand his peace reference to his shalom. That his peace is complete. It's not just the absence of conflict. It is more than tranquility. It is completeness, soundness, welfare, well-being, wholeness. This is a beautiful thing about the peace of God. So, so for us as Christians, we, we understand that when we trust in God and the peace of God, we understand his peace. It changes us. Everything about us. We are at peace with God. We know that God will judge the world. But for a Christian, he understands that his father will move. And he is at peace with God. A lot of times when I talk to people who don't know Jesus and I share with them, when you die, do you know where you're going to end up? And they say to me, I might end up in heaven. And I was like, are you sure? I'm not sure. Do you have peace? I have no peace at all. What a horrible way to live. And my response to them is, look, I can assure you that you can have peace if you turn to Jesus, if you repent of your sins, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, that you will have peace with God. There is this practical aspect of God's peace as well, right? The, The completeness, the soundness that we get as Christians. Philippians chapter 4 In Paul's final instructions, he mentions the peace of God twice. In verse 7, this is exactly what he mentions. He says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So the word guard here is where we get the word garrison from. So it's a troops that's that's fortified, that's guarding a particular place, an area, a safe place. So the peace of God forms a garrison over our hearts. It protects our hearts. And this is what Paul says here. Allow the peace of God to guard your hearts. But you think he will be done with the peace of God. No, he continues to talk about the peace of God. And in that, he tells us and he gives us two ways practically that we can apply the peace of God. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Now, this is very important. The first way is that we must think differently. We must think differently. So if the peace of God is forming a garrison around my heart, I think differently. I don't think like the world. I have a heavenly perspective. And the Bible talks a lot about having heavenly perspective. So so here it is. This is what he says here in verse 8. He says this, Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is any worthy of praise, think about these things. This is practically what we must do as Christians. We think about what is honorable, what is just, what is pure, what is good, what is holy, what is righteous, right? So we think differently. Secondly, 
the, the, the way we appropriate the peace of God in our hearts, right? So, so God has deposited his peace when we become saved. And the way we appropriate this peace in our heart is to think differently and secondly, to act obediently. Act obediently. Where are you getting this from, Kevin? Again, Philippians chapter 4 in verse 9. He continues and he says, Whatever you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So, so for us in our everyday life, when we forget as Christians the peace of God, when we struggle with the peace of God, there are two things practically that we must do. One, to think differently, and two, to act obediently. And I can tell you this, Christians who do not think differently and do not act obediently struggle tremendously with understanding the peace of God. They are constantly in turmoil. And I might be talking about you this morning. Is there peace in your life? Maybe the reason why there's no peace because you're not thinking differently, because you're not acting obediently. If you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, the reason why you have no peace is because Jesus is not Lord of your life. He's not your Savior. So friends, this is a beautiful picture here about the peace of God. Let me give you a great example how we as Christians apply the peace of God in our lives, and yet we find a sense of peace and joy and calmness even in the midst of great difficulty. I mean, I cannot help but think about Danielle. And I'm pretty sure, and she shared with you, that she struggled tremendously. But when I listen to the sister speak, I see peace. There is an understanding of what God is doing even in the midst of difficult situation. You, you, you think about a hurricane that rages over the ocean. Think about it. And we get this in our context because we constantly have hurricanes coming our way. But it goes through the ocean first and it comes to us and it rages over the ocean. It, it causes great waves and havoc and chaos. But 25 feet below that water is calmness. <laughs> Do you know that? The fish, they're all looking at each other and enjoying life as, as we are panicking above the water, right? There is calmness under the ocean. So it must be for the Christian. So it must be. So friends, come in closer and get this, get this. I want you to get this from this illustration. When there is death, there is peace. So it is in the life of a Christian. When there is depth, there is peace. When I understand the purpose of God, when I understand the sovereignty of God, when I understand the love of God, the justice of God, the wrath of God, the discipline of God, when, when I understand who Jesus is, there is peace. But when I don't, I struggle tremendously. So the, the second point, second point, we need to move on. We've got six points. So second point here is his resurrection, his resurrection. This is the, the next part of the doxology. He says, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead? And here he, he wants his audience, he wants you to look upon the resurrection of Jesus. So when you are struggling in this life, look to Jesus' peace and look to Jesus' resurrection. 
You do not serve a God who is in the grave, but a God who is resurrected, a God who is ruling on high. In the Old Testament, when they presented a sacrifice, that sacrifice will remain on the altar. There is no way possible that that sacrifice will be resurrected. But when it pertains to Jesus, Jesus is no longer on the altar. Jesus has become the altar for us. This is why in the New Testament, it says to present our lives to Jesus as living sacrifices. Don't miss this. Come in closer and write this down. Jesus did not remain on the altar as a dead sacrifice, but rather through his resurrection power, he became the altar on which we are called to present our lives. In fact, without the resurrection, there would be no Christianity. Without the resurrection, there will be no reconciliation with God. Thank God for the resurrection. Thank God that we can look at the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and say, man, it is finished. That when we die, cancer might take this body. Old age might take this body. Arthritis might take this body. But guess what? Jesus will preserve me, my soul. That when I die, I will be with him forever. Thank God for the resurrection. No other religion shares about the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ like this. No other religion shares about resurrection like Christianity does. So friends... Let us turn to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even when we go through difficult times, we say to ourselves, God, it might hurt a little bit. It might hurt a lot on this earth. But I know when I die, I will spend eternity with you forever. That's the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he moves on from the resurrection to his shepherding. You notice in your own Bible, still in verse 20, he's sharing about Jesus Christ. And he's calling us to cast our eyes on Jesus. I mean, the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. This is by far one of the greatest titles given to Jesus in Scripture. That he is a shepherd to us who are sheep. When you think about a sheep, a sheep, or a, they're very vulnerable, right? Very vulnerable. They're naive. They're dumb. And we see it in our own selves as Christians that, man, God, I, I do the same thing over and over and over again. God, I, I hurt you, God. God, I, I pursue things that I should not pursue. And we could identify ourselves as sheep. But more importantly, we see Jesus as our, our shepherd who leads us. Who cares for us? And we see this in Scripture, right? Matthew tells us of Jesus' shepherding. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, it says, When he saw the crowd, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus is like, I want to be your shepherd. I want to lead you. John talks a lot about Jesus Christ being the good shepherd. In John chapter 10, verses 14 through 15, he mentions, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. 
We've had great shepherds in the Old Testament, like Abraham and Moses and David and Elijah and on and on and on and on. They were good shepherds, but they were not great shepherds. We have the greatest. They do not compare to Jesus at all. And this is how, why he ends the book of Hebrews. To, he's speaking to Jewish people, and he's like, look, I know you adore these men, but the greatest shepherd of all is Jesus Christ. I see another great example here. As I was studying this, I could not help but, but notice this. In verse 7, it talks about leadership, that we need to remember our leaders. I shared this with you. In verse 17, it says that we need to obey our leaders. And again, in verse 24, it says that we need to greet our leaders. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. After verse 7, it says to remember our leaders. And in verse 8, he says to remember Jesus. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And there is a reason why. Because for us, a lot of times, we try to lionize, which is a sense to elevate men so highly that we forget to understand. The reason why we remember our leaders, our spiritual leaders, is because of Jesus. If they're not making much of Jesus, if, if they're not emulating Jesus, we don't remember them. And this is why the author, after verse 7, includes verse 8. That when men fall, we will never fall because Jesus remains. And then in verse 17, he says to obey our leaders. It's good. Obey your leaders. But hold up. Hold up, author. How are we supposed to do this? And what if they fall? What if they turn away from Jesus? Do we still obey them? No. No. The reason why is because of verse 20. And verse 20 says he is our ultimate shepherd. The reason why we obey our leaders is because they are obedient to Jesus. So Jim Jones, if we ever have a Jim Jones in our church, in our world today, we turn away from someone like this who claims to be Jesus himself. That's a problem. You're putting yourself above Jesus. This is a great application for us here, that we obey Jesus because he is the great shepherd and we obey our leaders because they're obedient to Jesus several weeks ago I got to talk to one of my family members and they shared with me about a pastor that made an advancement an advance to toward her her daughter her daughter is an adult 20 something years old and the pastor went and kissed her daughter so they found out about it she was pretty mad, and she decided, okay, I'm just going to walk away from the church. I had a chance to speak to her and let her know that was absolutely not good. And she looked at me, and she's like, what about the scripture that says, do not touch your anointed? He is of God. And because he's of God, he does nothing wrong. It's like, where are you getting this from? If he's not pursuing Jesus, if he's doing what is immoral, you are called not to follow don't do that. And I'm telling you, in a lot of non-denomination churches, that's what they do. They, they place the pastor so high up that he does nothing wrong. And they follow everything that a pastor does. But you're not called to do this. You're called to look at the great shepherd, and the great shepherd is Jesus. And thank God for under-shepherds who follow Jesus. One pastor said to me, man, I, I couldn't be a part of your congregation 
People are holding you accountable way too much. Ha! Huh. Thank God for that. Thank God. In my church, I get to do what I want, when I want, how I want. Dude, one day you will have to answer to God. Thank God that I have people who hold me accountable and who will hold our elders accountable. Thank God that we're not doing this by ourselves, but we're pursuing the things of God, right? So, so here it is. This is what we need to embrace. Jesus is the shepherd, the ultimate shepherd. And four, notice as well his eternal covenant here. Notice very carefully here, he's been talking about covenants throughout the book of Hebrews. Old covenant, new covenant. And then he shares throughout the book of Hebrews how the new covenant is superior to some degree, right? And the main reason why it is superior is because of the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says to us, do, do not neglect the old covenant, but what makes the new covenant superior is the fact that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. In the Old Testament, they sacrificed animals. In the New Testament, Jesus became the ultimate sacrifice. In the new covenant, it is eternal, which means it will never go away. It lasts forever. And the reason why we're excited about the eternal covenant is because God is a covenant-keeping God. That's one fact that we know in Scripture. God keeps His covenant. So when we go through difficult situation, we ask ourselves, am I in a covenantal relationship with Jesus? And the answer is, if it's yes, then we say to ourselves, oh, I can hold on. I can hold on to Jesus because He's holding on to me. I can hold on to Jesus because He's in a covenant with me, and He will never leave me or forsake me. This is why the eternal covenant is important for us to reflect upon. A perfect passage of Scripture that shares about the eternal covenant of our Lord Jesus Christ is in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by hand to bring them out of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. I'm thankful for God's eternal covenant. Are you not? Thankful for God's covenant. It is a promise that's given to us. It's a promise that we hold on to. Fifth, I love this. His equipping. See for yourself what he transitions from. He shares with us here specifically in verse 21 equip you with every good that you may do his will now stop one second as i was reading this text was very thankful for the sequence here the author of hebrews have shared thus far what god what christ has done for us that he has given us peace with god that he is our shepherd right that he has given us an internal covenant 
But notice very carefully as well. What's the point of doing something for me when I'm still on this earth? I need you to do something in me as well. Don't just do something for me. I want you to do something in me. And this is exactly what he transitions from, from what Christ has done for us to what Christ is doing in us. And in this passage of Scripture, we see that God is not a transcendent God who just sits on his throne. Yes, he does that, but he is intimate as well, who comes and intimately is involved with us. So here specifically, that he comes and and he equips us to do the work that he has called us to do. Equip us to have peace. Equip us to be able to endure trials and difficulties. I think of this to some degree like a grandfather who buys gifts for his grandchildren. I think of Pop Joe, my father-in-law. Every Christmas he'll buy gifts for the grandchildren, but Pop Joe always has his knife and he's always ready to cut things open. You want to be very careful with Pop Joe because he'll cut you. Um, but he, he goes and he, he buys the gifts for the children, but he doesn't just buy the gift and say, here are the gifts, use it, do whatever. But he's intimately involved. So he goes and he opens the gift for them. He puts the gift together for them. He plays with them with the gift. And this is a beautiful thing of what Christ does for us. He gives us gifts, great gifts. But what he does as well, he shows us how to appropriate those gifts, how to use these gifts, those gifts in our lives. And this is exactly what he does here. When he says to us that he, Christ, equips us, this is a very important word in the original language. So the meaning of this word can be three main things. One, it can mean perfect, to perfect, that he equips to perfect us, to mature us, right? The next is to make us good, to make it good. So, so we are, are troubled, we are going through difficult times, so, so God is looking at something that is not good to make it good. And the third is to mend. He mends something. One commentator mentions all three here as what the author is alluding to. But more specifically, the last one, that he mends stuff together. So I want you to observe with me and think deeply about this. He, Christ, perfects us through trials. He makes us good in bad situations. And he mends us when we are broken. This is the beauty of Christ our Lord. But the word mend was used in the ancient times, in Jesus' time as well, to, to explain and to express a fisherman who is mending his net. So if the net is broken or torn, here is this fisherman who would go and grab this net, gently put the net together. This word was used specifically in the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch over yourself, lest you too be tempted. What a powerful passage of Scripture here. This is exactly what Jesus does. He mends our hearts. He puts us together. And he tells us to go and to live for Jesus, to live for him. 
The word was also used to set a bone back in its place. So in that time, if you had a, a broken bone, then what you would do is put it back together. And this was the word that was used. Jesus, he mends us. He puts us back together. And he sends us out to make much of his name. So he equips us. And finally, his enabling. His enabling. Do you see it? And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ. I love scripture. I'm thankful for Christianity. I'm thankful for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That we're not commanded just to do something. We're told how to do it. And Jesus is equipping us and enabling us to do it. Because in and of ourselves, we can't do it. So what we find in Christianity is this great truth that God himself is working in us and through us. The beautiful thing about Christ, as we know this, is Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is exactly why... Paul, in his epistles, 169 times, he uses the prepositional phrase, in Christ Jesus. 169 times. In Christ. I'm crucified in Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ. What a powerful prepositional phrase, right? That we need to say that we belong to Christ and we do stuff in Christ. What a great truth that we have. John 15, 5 talks about abiding in the vine. We can do nothing without Christ Jesus. So friends, as we close, as we close, as we look to Jesus as we think about the book of Hebrews and all the doctrines and all the difficulties, as we've been journeying through the book of Hebrews, the final instruction for you, for me, is to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to his peace, his shepherding, his eternal covenant, his equipping, his enabling, his resurrection. We look to Jesus. The question is, are you? Are you looking at things around you? Is your foundation sinking? Or are you on a solid foundation, which is Christ? Maybe you say this year, Kevin, I've been really messing up. I haven't been looking to Jesus like I should I've been looking at my finances. I've been looking at my coworkers, my neighbors. I've been looking at everything around me. And I haven't been pursuing Jesus like I should. I know I'm a Christian, Kevin, but I struggle. You know what I love, what I love, what I love about Christianity? As long as you have breath, you cannot give up. You have breath. As long as you can utter those words, man, I, I really mess up. Oh, oh, I wish I can do better. You can. You can through Christ and in Christ. 
to turn to Jesus. You know what I love? I love about life. We're entering a new year. So forget about this year. You're entering a new year. And the Apostle Paul says this. He says, the things that I, I forget the things which are behind me and I press forward to the things which are ahead. Which is in Christ Jesus. You can do better. And Christ wants to do better in you. Return to Jesus. Turn to his love. Turn to his mercy. Join me as we pray. Father, thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our great shepherd. He has done the greatest work for us and in us, for those of us who are his. I pray, Father, that we turn to Jesus. We turn to Jesus for great sanctification. His justification is already done. In our hearts, in our lives, for those of us who are saved. And God, in our sanctification, we cooperate with our great God, our great Savior. We appropriate the things that he has deposited in us. And we walk with the Spirit. As the Apostle Paul mentions, there's no condemnation for those who walk in Christ. Our desire, God, for the remaining of this year, for next year, is to walk with Christ, to abide in Christ. Let us say it 169 times that we are in Christ. So be with us. In your mighty and precious name, amen.